Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many changemakers bemoan the media for ignoring or underplaying real issues like climate change. But what happens when someone in the media decides to use their role to talk about these issues? Let me introduce Craig Rucastle. In Australia, he's best known for his time as a political satirist and comedian with The Chaser. But following a series he did about waste he has now decided to take on the fossil fuel giants with his TV documentary, Fighting for Planet A. So why did a comedy guy decide to get serious? Or, perhaps more accurately, how has a lifetime of political satire prepared him to talk about climate change with a diverse audience? In this chat, we went all the way back to how he came to be in Australia so I could try and better understand his story. And on this, full disclosure, I've been friends with Craig since we were at university, which was about 20 years ago. Indeed, as Craig mentions during the chat, my husband Charles has been part of the Chaser team with Craig. But that aside, in this chat, I learnt new things about Craig, exploring his creative approach to the role of the media. I was also struck that several of Craig's media strategies have real resonance beyond the press and might prove very useful for those in climate groups and justice movements trying to make change too. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. Hello, Craig. Welcome to Changemakers. Good to be here. Oh, excellent. We are so glad to have you right in the middle of your incredible series on climate change. Thank you for being with us and making the time. Yeah, pleasure, pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's quite nice to do this after the, the day after the first episode has gone to air, which is very relieving to finally have it out there. Yep, I was delighted to see it. We're going to talk a little bit about it. But before we, um, before we do, what I wanted to ask you, we always ask, ask our guests, how do they think of themselves as a change maker? So you're a comedian <laughs> and a documentary maker and now, frankly, officially having seen the, the fight for planet, planet A, you are definitely a change maker. How do you work to make the world a better place? 
Well, it's interesting because <clears throat> I don't really consider myself a change maker. I mean, I guess I've gone on a strange journey from, you know, satire, I guess. And in that, obviously, satire is motive. You know, some of it was just jokes and stupid stunts and that, but there were definitely elements of it that were motivated by an outrage, you know, and that's where satire comes from, is being motivated by an outrage. So I guess even in satirical days, I was responding to things that frustrated me in the world, and, you know, I guess that's the intention of it. And now having gone through kind of a strange journey into the documentary space, I guess similarly I'm responding to things that uh, outrage me or often it's just kind of looking for, I say, solutions to things and kind of answers to things. I'm not, you know, like, it's interesting because I often, when I talk to people who are campaigners, they speak in a very different way than I do. And I think I'm also extremely wary of what I do because of the ABC as well. I'm very protective for the fact that I, if I'm working for the public broadcast and working for the ABC, I have to be kind of careful about the line that I'm treading as well. So I don't consider myself to be a campaign or anything like that. But bizarrely enough, and accidentally, things like war and waste did lead to change in ways that fascinated me actually. And it was kind of, it was not it was no genius on, <laughs> on my part beforehand, and you know there was genius on behalf of the people I work with. You know, Jody Boylan and the, the team at Keo and Loon uh, are amazing. But a lot of it was yeah, just, it was really interesting. It kind of made me change my idea of how change comes about as well. These are really interesting points, right? Like the idea that you have a different kind of voice to someone who might think of themselves as an activist, mm. like someone like. Me, for instance, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> we might project ourselves in the world in different ways. And this is one of the things that we we want to explore. But, you know, before I get into that, the thing that I'm interested in is partly a reference to what you just said, which is that, you know, you're moved to action based on the outrage, right? Yeah. So where does the outrage for you come from? I'm interested in you going like going back as far as you can or want in the <laughs> Craig Rucastle story of life. Yeah, let me get back to the couch here. I don't know. Uh, it's interesting. Look, I guess it's injustice is the general thing that frustrates me. And my background, I, I wouldn't think of my parents as really being big political pushes in a sense, but I guess there was a discussion of that level. I mean, we'd moved from South Africa to Australia, so I guess the background of South Africa and, you know, which is an incredibly terrible system, you know, the fact of, you know, moving predominantly because of apartheid and not really wanting to grow up in a country that had that kind of system and that, you know, particularly not wanting to because they had compulsory military service, not wanting, you know, for their kids to have to fight as part of that or become part of the military. I guess that was a kind of background. And my mum's a social worker, which I think probably, you know, my parents were very much not ever kind of preachy about politics or anything. But I guess that's just... They weren't the, activists. No, that's the, well, it's the kind of values. Yeah. So I don't know. That's, that's maybe informs it. I don't know. I, I kind of, I think that Interestingly enough, I think my response to things like that kind of thing is generally one of anger. Like it kind of gets me annoyed. Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah, I guess that's, I don't know. Yeah, it's a strange, it's, I don't really know. But I've always been interested in politics and, you know, that, those kind of questions of inequality and, you know, justice and all Where that kind of stuff. Where do you think that appetite for politics came from? Where did it first arise for you, in school or? Yeah, definitely in school. You know, I, I kind of was... I really enjoyed debating and, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I look back and I have memories of 
certain aspects of politics or whatever. And I think back and go, well, I would have been, you know, 14 or 13 or whatever when that was happening. So it's interesting that there was some awareness of that kind of politics. So, yeah, look, you know, I guess that's where it comes from. I mean, interest in politics, interest in how our world works and how it's put together and, you know, how things are distributed between people and how people miss out and how people use power and all that kind of stuff is what fascinates me. So you went to university, uh, went to an elite university, even though you came from a public school in (laughs) regional New South Wales. Yes. Yeah. And then with all of this appetite and interest for political questions, you did a law degree, but you ended up not becoming a lawyer. Tell me about those choices. Yeah. Well, that's uh, predominantly due to your husband, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess at university, I I enjoyed law and I was kind of like, that's what I thought I would do. But at university, I spent a lot of time doing things like reviews, university newspapers, just stuffing around and having fun, theatre sports, all that kind of stuff. I didn't spend an enormous amount of time actually doing university stuff. And then Towards the end of my law degree, when I was still there, Charles, your husband, <laughs> wanted to set up a newspaper, a satirical newspaper, The Chaser, and I loved the idea of that. And Why? Why, did, why, did, the, why did that idea resonate well, with you? Well, probably, I mean, probably more the humour side as well. Like, I love taking the piss. I love, you know, that's really where I was more focused. I mean, as I said, I, you know, I tended to, you know, in within The Chaser team, there was a bit more of a divide between those that which just about the jokes and those are a bit more about the satire. And I was definitely on more on the satire side. I liked something having a camp, point. A factional group. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, liked, I liked things having a point to them. But, yeah, it's just a really exciting idea. And so we started the newspaper and that led to a bit of media stuff and led to eventually being Andrew Denton approaching us and saying, do you want to do TV? And I think some of the other guys might have really wanted to do TV, as in, you know, that was probably a dream of theirs. It was never a dream of mine. I didn't think it was going to be my career. It was extremely accidental, but I'm still here. <laughs> Indeed, it started to work, right? You, know, you started to do TV and then more TV and more TV. And for some of our older audience, they will remember, well, hopefully all, they all remember, but some of them will remember the war and everything, which yeah. was such a big success. What did doing political satire at that scale, what, what impact did it have on you? It's an interesting question. What impact did it have on me? I have no idea. I don't... I Look, I enjoyed it. I don't think it... I don't know. I don't think of the impact it had on me. It's interesting because people often ask me about the impact it had on other people. So, you know, there's... I remember after Howard lost an election and somebody tried to rake it, right, I think it was an academic piece saying, oh, the, the chaser helped bring this about. And I was like, no, it didn't. <laughs> this is such utter rubbish. We're so talking it up. Um, I think that the, the thing that I think doing a comedy show about politics does is that it brings it to a different audience. And that's the main thing is, that, you know, you might be saying the exact same thing that a columnist is saying in the Saturday morning newspaper but you're saying it in a different way to a different audience and it generally gets younger people involved. And I think that's the major thing about comedy is it gets the younger audience involved and that's, I think, really important. Um, so, yeah, I, I, in terms of the effect it had on me, I don't know. I, Yeah. <laughs> I have very little insight into myself. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> no, 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 but that's interesting, right? So you definitely did have an impact. Maybe you didn't win elections. Yeah. But, you know... 
but you did did definitely create waves of maybe political awareness and engagement amongst lots of different people, yeah? Look, look it's definitely the case that I still get people kind of coming up to me who, are, you know, it might be in their 30s or whatever saying, oh, you know, the chaser is what made me become aware of or interested in politics, yeah. you know, because we were, you know, hassling politicians and talking about political things. And again, it wasn't all that. A lot of it were just stupid stunts and, you know, ridiculous gags as well. So it was a really interesting mix. Like the show literally is called War and Everything and it really, the whole interesting thing about it was it just covered everything really. Yeah, yeah. from War and Everything or, or earlier with CNN and then, what was your favourite moment? Does something stick out as, as a moment that really made you laugh or made you happy or... <laughs> Made you scared or something? I don't know. Like it's one of the things I, you know, like I think APEC was obviously an amazing big moment. Uh, this is where the team drove the kind of chauffeur-driven cars with Canadian flags through masses of $170 million worth of security. But personally the one I find amusing was the Trojan horse because I remember this, when I pitched the idea, I remember not thinking it was any good and actually kind of threw it away like, oh, yeah, and when I was kind of thinking about it, what if we're like testing history and like we saw if we could still get a Trojan horse through people's, you know, and the, everyone in the rise room loved it. And so we kind of, it got to this ridiculous stage though, we ended up building a, a, like a life-size Trojan horse, which was enormous, like it was massive. <laughs> it was like, how high? It, it it would have been like 10 metres high and wow. like, you know, it was massive. And this whole prop building So when the section, ABC had a props department. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this is it. It was one of those weird things where we kind of was actually committed to it and we would like drive it around on a trailer and try to get into places. And actually, literally two days ago when I was doing a, an interview with the Today Show, they showed me taking the Trojan horse through Channel 9 security. <laughs> I took it through the security <laughs> and through the gates of the, like, the opera house and, and a, wow. military, a military facility in Sydney. And they, it was really funny because, of course, they all let it through with no reference to the historical analogy. <laughs> so that was what, for me, was one of those, the, probably one of the really fun ones that, that kind of, just to see a very offhanded idea be backed on such a ridiculous scale. And this is the thing that still still amazes me and I would find really bizarre is you'd have these crazy ideas and then this department of people, you know, these people in the production would take what you'd said seriously and they'd, they'd never kind of go, um, look, this is stupid. It's you know, too hard. Yeah, and you'd, you'd suddenly find yourself doing this most ridiculous thing and it was, yeah, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, yeah like you could do anything. On the yeah, you kind of feel it. Yeah, it kind of felt like that. There were certainly things that we probably didn't do and there were ideas we, we scotched, but, yeah, it was, it was kind of an extraordinary period. Did you ever think of, of – was it ever not working for you? Did you ever think, ah, oh, I can't do this, I need to pursue something else? Look, I, I think for basically the first probably five or ten years of doing TV, I always thought I was going to go back to the law. I always thought that – this was just this weird accidental side career that's kind of fun at the time and I was enjoying and, you know, let's follow for a while. But, you know, this is going to end pretty soon. I think I've finally now accepted I'm not going back to law, <laughs> which is pretty good for... It's <laughs> good news for anybody who... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's good news for anyone who is going to be my client in the future. Uh, I don't think I remember <laughs> a single thing from law school. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what's a remedy? Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so... Then another transition, right, and this has been more recent into this world of documentaries. Mm. Why did you decide 
to shift to that to more factual content? Well, interestingly, there's, it, it wasn't a decision on my behalf and it would probably involved a middle step, the checkout, which kind of had an element of comedy and but also a kind of journalistic element to it. And that kind of, even before that on, on Hamster Wheel, I'd kind of done a story about pokies and kind of done it as a kind of a journalistic story and examination of the poker laws in Australia and gone to Western Australia and that kind of stuff, but done it in a certain with a certain tone of doing a report. And then we kind of did similar things in the checkout and then so I'd kind of got into this strange middle world of kind of, you know, the checkout, you're doing you're wearing stupid costumes and making jokes, but you're also you had to be like checking things to within an inch of their life. Like the, you know, the number of footnotes in a script is just insane. So that it was kind of the middle stage. And then, I mean, it was, it was partly luck. I was asked whether I was interested in issues of waste and that kind of thing because War and Waste was initially a British format. So it was done in Britain and they were planning to do it at the ABC and they said, oh, look, we think you're the person who kind of is best fit for this kind of show because it involved, you know, involved a bit of stunt type stuff. Uh, coincidentally, it involved, you know, a bit of exploring stuff. And they said, are you interested in the issue? And I, and I said, yeah, definitely. I, I wasn't, I didn't go into it though. I wasn't like a waste campaigner. So, you know, I was, in, I was bizarrely enough, probably more interested in the climate stuff, even back then, than I was in waste. So I went into it probably at the same level as the audience went into it. So I was kind of finding the answers at the same time they were. And I think that really helped it was actually because it was kind of like, I didn't go into it really judgmental, like, hey, you all meant to do this. I'm going to tell you what to think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I went into it kind of going, hey, wow, I'm shit at all these things. Let's see if we can find solutions. Yeah, yeah. As a, every person. Yeah, well, yeah. And I'm just as I actually was, it was just being honest. Because <laughs> you are at every yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was an interesting transition. And, and uh, the great directors, Jody and Sandra, in the first series, like, they did have to, you know, my natural instinct was to try and go for the gag at everything. And, and there were sometimes they go, Craig, we need you to tell us what you're actually feeling now. <laughs> Craig and, and Sandra is this wonderful thing where she's, her facial expressions, she can't hide what she's thinking. Right, so don't play, I just, play poker with her. Yeah, it she's great. <laughs> I just, I just do a take and I just look to her and I go, okay, well, you didn't like that. Let's go again. <laughs> yeah, it was great. So, so yeah, I, I learned a lot by doing that. And I really, again, it was the, it was the most serious show I'd ever done. But bizarrely enough, because it was in a totally different space in a documentary space, it'd have all these people afterwards going, oh, that's the funniest documentary. You go, what? <laughs> that's just, I was so serious <laughs> throughout that. So, but I've, I really, I really enjoy that space. And I think that, that what I love the most is the capacity to really deeply look into something before you have to commit to it. I hate, I hate, you know, having to go on and go on a panel that day and respond to all the news that's happened. I don't, I really don't like that. I don't. You know, I liked being spending a lot of time researching something and then kind of crafting the response to it and that kind of thing. So yeah. that's what I enjoy the most. So you said, though, in this, as you're beginning to answer that, actually you're, you're probably more um, drawn to the question of climate change yeah. before the question of waste maybe. What had already got you interested in climate change? Well, I mean, I just think, you know, it was a massive problem facing us and, I, you know, I wasn't... It wasn't like I was massively focused on it, but, you know, I put solar panels on it. I've, you know, paid green power for years because I thought, my God, we can't, you know, we've got to be doing something about this. But I, you know, I also, I think, was a bad driver and I was not to drive too much and eat too much meat. So I was definitely not the kind of, again, coming into this show, part of the journey is about 
seeking change and looking into it, I guess. And it's interesting, you, the name of the thing, change makers, it's, I find it's more about seeking change. I'm not, you know, like it's kind of, it's seeking the solutions, I mm. guess, is what I enjoy. Yeah, and you're probably not making it on your own. It's sort of navigating your way through is what I'm, yeah, what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Cool. So can I ask though, right, just on the climate change question, like you actually articulated this really quite profound family experience you had as a kid where your family um, made this active decision to take you and your brother out of a terrible place to not expose you to apartheid. I'm wondering, does that resonate at all with your thinking about climate change? I think that a lot of that kind of stuff is probably... (laughs) below a level of consciousness really and again it's not like it was taking us out because we were the, you know we were the not we were not part of the oppressed in South Africa you know we were part of the privileged oppressors essentially but that didn't particularly sit well you know with my, my family and they didn't interestingly enough they didn't see change coming they actually left because they didn't think there'd be change and then you know there was in the end um but yeah, so I don't know. It, it, it's not like that. That's a thing that I think about on a kind of common level. And in terms of climate change, it's it's interesting. I don't, you know, I, obviously I've got my got three kids, and I'm concerned about their future. But it's it's a much bigger thing, really. Like I'm not as concerned about them personally as I am about the broader world, and you know, you know, the people that are going to be affected and particularly poorer populations and a lot of people overseas. I mean, Australia is going to be massively affected. And, God, just to to see the faces of some of the farmers going through those droughts and, you know, often some are climate deniers as well, but far out you still feel for them. You know, it's just, I don't know, It's just it just feels like, a again, a, a massive injustice really to, to pass on the world like that without really doing all you can to try and fix it. Excellent. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're trying to fix it, but let's unpack how you're trying to fix it. So one of the things that I think is interesting about where you've decided to place yourself, you know, somewhat by accident and somewhat by design, is working inside the media, right? And the, and the media is a difficult beast when it comes to, to questions of change. In particular, there's so much hostility to climate change. But you're there and you're fighting away. That's where you've staged this battle for the latest show that you're working on. Why is the media such an important place to play? Well, I think the power of the media is just still, even even nowadays with, you know, reduced ratings on television and reduced people watching TV, it still has an amazing capacity to communicate with a large number of people. Like, it's amazing how many people today on my journeys have come up and gone, oh, we watched the show last night, I loved this part of it, you know. So it's it's about that shared experience. And for me, what, what I realised really early on in doing this show was I kind of think I had much grander ambitions for what would be covered in the show. I thought we'd cover a lot more. But I realised really early on in talking to average punters about it that there was a real misunderstanding, a real kind of lack of clarity about the actual issue. So I actually focused a lot more down on the simplicity of like just trying to go, to be honest, all this show is trying to do is to achieve a greater understanding. And people, you know, if people just even understand the idea of a carbon footprint and where that's coming from, that would be a big step forward as far as I'm concerned because that misunderstanding obviously leads to kind of, it helps lead to bad policy and bad decisions and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I guess that's where I come from in, in terms of that message. And I think media, yeah, media is really powerful. You know, we've seen, 
in many ways some of the changes that have been held back in Australia have come because the media's been shrieking on the other side of this debate. The, the one thing I really am glad about is that we've got to a stage, and I give full credit to the ABC for this, that um, I'm not having to do a show where I go, oh, you've got to be balanced and check out whether or not there is climate change because this is an utter waste of time. I mean, you know, it's a very small proportion of the population are, are climate deniers. It's slightly higher in Australia than the rest of the world, but it's just such a waste of time because you, you're talking to people who don't want to change their minds, have been disproved so many times, what a waste. And I remember like 10 years ago, that was the approach. It was kind of like you put a climate change supporter with a climate change denier on TV and, you know, it was like, I can change your mind about climate change and that. And you go, you know, and understand why that was the thing at the time. But wow, it was, you know, I'm so glad we don't have to do that anymore because really we're just looking at the solutions. And I'm not even looking at the science. Like I'm not a scientist. I'm not, I'm not here to look at the science. I'm, my background is political science and that's actually where we've been fucking this up. In politics. It's in politics yeah, that it's been like it's politics up. and economics that's messing this up. It's, it's at a cultural level. It's not at a kind of science level. Speaking of politics, I mean, your favourite tool, you mentioned it when you were talking about your journey, has been the use of, of, um, of political satire. How do you think, what role do you think satire, rather than just jokes or rather than just commentary, what role does satire play in both changing decision makers, but I think even more interestingly I'm asking about shifting those who are watching it. Yeah, look, I'm, I tend to be actually, um, I tend to play down. I'm not one of the people that says satire cures things. I tend to play down its effects. As I said, I think the main thing is probably that it gets to a different audience. And I think sometimes satire can brilliantly distill an idea in a way that you think about it differently. Like a good piece of satire does that. And I'm not saying that's, I'm not saying I've ever created any of that, but I'm just saying that, you know, sometimes when you watch some of the American kind of political satire about their system, you know, it actually gives you so much more than just watching a normal kind of journalistic piece about the, the system. It can show the ridiculousness of it. Of it, so I think it's. I think it is a good way of communicating that, and I think it's good to get to different audiences and different people respond to it in different ways. But um, yeah, I'm not saying it's the be all and end all. You know, it can also be. It can also be a very blunt tool. As a matter of fact, one of the things about the chaser is that I always be fascinated hearing people say to you, "Oh, you know, I love the way you kind of said did this and you were saying that." And you're like, "Really? I didn't think I was saying that at all." And there were sometimes where people, you know, probably one of our because scandals involved people thinking we were making a satirical point when in actual fact it was just making a joke. So, you know, it's it's a it's not the clearest of things necessarily, but sometimes if it's done well, I think it can actually really motivate people or change minds. And I mean, and there's another criticism that's been levelled against groups like The Daily Show, which is that they curate a bubble. You know, a left a left bubble of people mm. who reinforce and talk to each other. They ridicule the people on the other side of the bubble and in ridiculing them, they in, they empower and um, build up their opponents, actually strengthen the arm of the people that they're fighting. Have you ever uh, yeah, experienced I, I this? Think, I think that's true. Though. The interesting, I, I, I would say I'd also experienced the opposite as well in that, you know, I found that, you know, people from all sides of politics love the chaser. Like, so you talk, talk, you turn up to Canberra and all the politicians from all sides loved it. And they almost kind of loved, in a kind of weird, narcissistic way that politicians can be, they, they kind of love being talked about, even if you're taking the piss out of them, in a really strange <laughs> way. It's always still, it's still kind of amazed me. They prefer me, to be in the thing. conversation, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I, I always found that, you know, 
you'd have people who were from all sides of the political spectrum watching and enjoying this uh, political comments, even though it may have actually been underlying message may have been very much against their politics as well. So that may have just been our experience. But, yeah, no, I'm very aware that, that that kind of bubble can be created and I think Trump is obviously the example of where that... That came got to the fore. <laughs> yeah, got out of hand, exactly. Yeah, I wonder if America, American experience of comedy in that way is different to Australia because of its size. Yeah, I wonder about that. I mean, I, you know, you, you wonder. I'm sure there's Republicans that love The Daily Show and that kind of thing, just like Couple. the politics of it. Um, you know, I'm sure there's the people that watched The Colbert Report and just didn't realise it was being facetious. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's a really it's an interesting thing I always think about satire is... You know, sometimes it can be done in a way that the audience takes it not in the way you intended. And the example I always think about that is Sasha Baron Cohen's um, Ali G. And, you know, Ali G would talk in this kind of, you know, certain accent and come from a certain kind of class background. And he would always talk about homosexuals being batty boys. Now, that was taken on by a lot of the kind of audience. We, you know, for certain, we would kind of call gay people batty boys. But I don't think... I mean, I'm giving Sacha Baron Cohen the, the credit that he wasn't doing he wasn't doing it with any kind of critique of homosexuality and he was trying to just be in the character. But it kind of was used and it became a kind of term that in actual fact was, you know, had a kind of edge to it in, in a way that I'm sure he didn't want it to have. So, yeah, you've got to be careful with that kind of stuff. Comedy can, <laughs> comedy can be confusing. It can give the wrong message. It's, you know... It's not the clearest way of communicating. Yeah, and and who you're targeting, right? If yeah. Punching up or punching down and all that Yeah, sort of well, confusion. exactly. I mean, I always think you've got to try and punch up, although we certainly times that we, you know, we became very aware and even in this show actually if, you know, you turn up to the to the corporate headquarters, the reality is you're talking to the security guard and the receptionist, you're not talking to the CEO. But, you know, I think, I think as long as you're not being unfair to them and you're not making them look bad, uh, there can still be a role for that. Yeah, yeah, okay. You've got to have rules. That's what I rules. love about comedy. There are a whole, there's all these rules, rules, written exactly. and unwritten rules about what you've got to do. Everyone's always like, you know, every interview for the first like 10 years of the show, so, oh, it must be so much fun, you know, having these things. You just sit around having a beer. It's like, no, we sit around like accountants and analyse things like, hmm, yeah, no, I think what about if they change this to that? Uh, you know, it's literally a writer's room is a really boring kind of... It's not boring. It's fun. It's great. But it is it's done on this real kind of – there's not actually a lot of laughter generally. Generally speaking, if there's a laughter at a joke, you know it's not going to go to air because it's so outrageous that the room's loving it, but yeah. they know it's not going to go to air. <laughs> so you've – given the complexities of comedy but not because of it, um, you're focused in on uh, – documentaries, mm. the climate change piece and others. You know, you, you talked before about why you, your journey into that space, right, the transition um, and, the, and your appetite for, for reporting. I'm wondering what you're hoping to achieve, you know, like there have been, as you very well said, you know, there's lots of people, I think of Al Gore, I think of all the climate scientists, bless them, who've tried to communicate climate change, who've tried to be able to do what you're doing, right, is to sort of explain things and be able to bring in a broader audience. What, what, like, what are you doing or in what way do you think you're going to be able to do something different? Okay, I guess the differences, and firstly, can I say that all of those that have gone before have achieved this, you know, like the fact that we've had any progress is, you know, Al Gore did achieve a big change. 
you know, every little bit helps. And it, it's interesting. And after War and Waste, people would say, oh, this all happened because of War and Waste. And you go, no, it didn't. It happened. The War and Waste was just another voice that went on top of, you know, there was other media doing stuff like the project. There's all these activist groups who are doing something. There's people who have been campaigning about this for years. There's people in the public that are talking about this. That's what made the change. It's not just the bloody TV show. That's only kind of a very small part of it. But in terms of this, I guess I'm... I'm really wary of trying to get to a broader audience. I'm not, I really don't want to just preach to the converted. That's the, you know, preach to the choir. That's the main thing I try and avoid. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to talk to people who are climate activists. You know, you're already a climate activist. I'm talking to average punters who, 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 they're not climate deniers. It's the opposite. It's people who are going, I really am worried about the climate. I just don't know what to do about it. I don't really kind of understand. You know, I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned the future of my kids, but I really don't quite necessarily get it. And that's where I think I, that's where I aim my kind of energy, I guess. Mm. One of the things about the first episode is, and all the episodes, I presume, is that it's very solutions focused, right? You're sort of, you're working with these families. They're, they're talking about how they can reduce their their carbon footprint what impact do you think that kind of focus has that, you know, that adds something helpful to the yeah. conversation? Okay, so that's really interesting, Craig, and I'll look at it two ways, right? Um, firstly, just to say that the terrible thing is that in Australia, our emissions are coming down so slow that you actually can make a big difference by oh just doing God, individual that stuff. Is the worst. Like, it's ridiculous. So, I was, I was talking about this the other day. Like, so uh, last, the 2018 to 2019, there was actually a drop in emissions in Australia, and there was kind of a bit of crowing about that. And it was about 5 million tonnes. That's when you, if you look at including land use, land use change in forestry, which is what the government wants to look at generally. So, we'll use those figures. So, five million tonnes of CO2. Now, there are about nine or 10 million households in Australia, right? Let's say we get half of them to be active. And then we're not even going to get that, but half of them to knock off one tonne is the same as we knocked off from the government, right? Five million tonnes. Now, the reality is one tonne's bloody easy. Like, you know, it's, I'm not going to give away with the results of this show. <laughs> I can't even remember off the top of my head now. But well, but uh, I was shocked. It was a genuine experiment. We achieved a hell of a lot more in terms of those families. And obviously not everyone's going to do it. But the sad thing about Australian climate debate is that it's actually not pointless to focus on individual change. No, there is a point to it. But that's not um, – there's, there's a whole – okay, so let me just – this is – Post-war on waste and the experience of war on waste, I had a really, you know, looking back on it, looking back on the changes that happened, it really changed my conception of how things changed. So I probably came into it from this kind of, you know, government honours, politics, background, really focused at the federal level. I thought that what you do is you kind of, you know, you, you put pressure on the politicians to change, they change a the law and everything's fixed, Right. Now, having done a lot of research before doing War and Waste, I was very wary of the fact that you'd look back and go, oh, look, they proposed the plastic bag ban in this year and then and three years later and then three years later and it generally nothing happens. <clears throat> and so we were very wary of the fact that you don't want to do a show whereby the only thing you can do is, you know, get on Facebook and tell a politician to change the law. So we really did want to look for individual change as well. Now, that was partly to prevent frustration being the only thing, but it was also about giving, you know, giving people something to do. What we found, though, and this is all in hindsight, there's no kind of, there's no genius, there was no intention beforehand. What surprised me was that 
by individuals really getting involved and going, oh, I can do this thing, it made them then go, oh, what can I do next? And I'll do this next thing, right? And then they'd get to a point where they're like frustrated. So they'd be calling up the council going, how come we don't do this? How come we don't do this? And councils have said to me, like they got bombarded after the show, like, why haven't we got this? It's like, so you kind of went, okay, it's really interesting. And, and what you then see is you see changes probably at council level first, and then you you saw changes at state government levels, little, little things happened. And then, you know, three, four years later, you know, you had Scott Morrison kind of talking about plastic policies Anything and waste policy. <laughs> exactly. Well, this is one of the reasons I want to do that show. Um, but it was interesting. It was kind of, it was like a reverse. And I've, I've had politicians say to me, and more than one actually, that um, well, this sentiment at least, which is that we don't lead, we follow. And that's really interesting. It's like that they, that, you know, politicians are actually like hound dogs. They're sniffing the wind, you know. And part of the reason they, you know, often sometimes, you know, obviously there's powerful forces involved in not climate change not having changed, but they also think they can kind of get away with it. They, you know, they're sniffing the wind as well. So I was just really interested by that, by the fact that people's individual changes got them involved in something and motivated them more. And I think that it's really, I also think, to be honest, I just... I would. I didn't want to do another climate change show because this is experience of some of them. Is that you go, you go into a room for an hour and a half, you get really depressed, you get really told it's all shit, yeah. you get very few solutions. You come out of it and go, okay, now I'm depressed. What can I do? You know. And obviously, this political activism is a really important response to that. But we know that not everyone does that as well. We know that you know there's a certain type of person who's never going to go to a protest, but who, in actual fact might do these things at home and then end up writing a, a, a polite letter to their local member, you know? And then they might find themselves on a pathway to getting involved in a group. Absolutely, yeah, right? exactly. You know, like yeah. from individual change to group change. Yeah, you know? and this is the thing is that that's not my intention to, um, you know, activists say to me, you know, you've got to do this. I'm like, I'm not, no, no, this, I'm not doing this. this no. is, You're a different, playing I'm a different, different role. I'm a diff, totally You're different. You're employed by the ABC. You're not allowed to do exactly. any of that I'm stuff. Not, <laughs> and, I'm, and, I don't, and I don't want to say you should just go off and do this. Like I, I, I love the idea of giving people the information and then seeing what they do with it, not actually kind of telling them you've got to go and do this. It's like the kind of you give them and you go, ooh, let's see what happens. And frankly, isn't that what a democracy is meant to do? You know, like you've got a really big pressing problem <laughs> on the horizon. Here's some information. People do with it what they will. Like the yeah. idea that that is in yeah. any way controversial is kind yeah, of crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, it hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> so far it hasn't been controversial. Let's see. Let's yeah, well, see. Fingers crossed, right? Fingers, fingers yeah, crossed. Yeah. I mean, I've never um, seen the, climate um, change have been controversial before. Yeah, the, the um, columnists from a certain news organisation haven't quite got involved yet, so I look forward to seeing their response. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, all in good time. So one just final question, you know, like thinking back, we've discussed a whole bunch of strategies that you've encountered and used uh, to help uh, what I call make change, but, you know, you're just helping people have options for change or seeing the changes that are available to them, whatever the language you want to call. Call. So looking back over your career, what have you learned or is there a key lesson that you've learned about the power of content or the power of the media or documentaries to impact people? Yeah, well, I guess, look, I think it, I think that it does have a really important role. I think that, that you know, communicating to people and giving them information and, and getting them in, engaged and excited about things is really important and possible. It's hard and it doesn't, you know, it's not the natural response. I mean, 
you know, I'm sure Charles might agree with me that, you know, in general you make television and there's no real change is achieved or <laughs> nothing really happens. You know, people laugh and move on maybe. Uh, but I think you can actually change things in that. And I guess the thing that I found interesting, and I guess this goes back to that notion of power, is it, man, it's, just, it's such a complex beast. In the, you know, getting change, it's not just about politicians, it's not just about business, it's not just about individuals. It's, not, it's this really fascinating interplay between all these different levels and interesting feedback loops. And um, I'm currently working on a documentary about democracy and about you know, money and politics and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's really interesting being in that level as well and kind of looking at all of the different forces at play in making an idea pop out the other end or making a piece of policy pop out the other end. I'm really fascinated by that. Mm. You know, what leads to that bit of policy? I mean, it sounds very boring. <laughs> Craig, whoa, <laughs> the birth of a new bit of policy. But it, it is amazing the kind of the, the kind of the wheels that churn away to actually create something and get, a, get an end result. And so I, I think it's fascinating. And as I said, I think generally speaking, the media is, a, is one of the cogs, I guess, involved in that, how much of an imp- impact it has. Yeah, it really depends. I mean, it sounds like what you're doing is sort of popular education in a sense, is that you're sort of breaking over the system. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. I mean, there isn't, like, again, totally accidentally, the probably the biggest impact of War and Waste is just that it was showed in heaps of schools because... I know, my kids came home and started berating us about forms of recycling. The powerful thing was, yeah, the powerful thing was the the pester power of kids up to their parents. But, again, that was just probably because the tone was a bit you know, more friendly or a bit of a joke here and there. And so kind of kids engaged with it. So, yeah, like, again, accidental. And see, anything I've achieved has been by total accident. No. There's been no, no, <laughs> there's been no proper thought. But no, actually there was, there was one definite thing that before doing War and Waste that was great because myself and Jody and Sandra and the team that we're putting together were really all on the very, very, very same page. And that was that we didn't want to be really judgmental. You know, we we weren't going to go in there and be judgmental of what people were doing because no one's perfect. And we weren't going to kind of, we were going to push for perfection. We we're going to kind of go, look, you know, oh, wow, you're doing this, but what can we do? And I think that's really, that tonal element I think was actually really important. Yeah, that we can try and do better rather than you're not perfect enough. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the, in, in general terms, I think sometimes an environmental movement can push people away because of a certain sense of judgmentalness or something, which is interesting. And interesting as well, I don't, actually don't necessarily think climate change is an environmental problem either. Like it's much bigger think, than that. Yeah, yeah, it's much it's, an, bigger. it's sort of an everything it's problem. It's a humanity really. <laughs> problem. Like it's much bigger than, than an environmental problem. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah. But there's probably a lot that people who are involved in social change activism or campaigning can learn from the approach that you've taken in terms of, not taking a judgmental attitude to, to behaviour, to ha- sort of having an open stance, being solutions-oriented. Some of the things that you've adopted maybe maybe. Maybe, are, maybe are useful. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, this is, it's, look. We'll give them to them by yeah, accident. Yeah, I don't know. Right? This is it. Who knows? And it's, you know, it's, um, it's not easy. Like, you know, documentary like Planet A has taken years of work, so it's kind of, you know, it's not not a simple thing to do. So I don't know. Let's see what <laughs> let's see what they do with let's it. Let's see where it goes. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us Thanks, today. Thanks, Amanda. No worries. Check out 
Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating and our audio producer is Jules Walkerup. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. We have a weekly training program called the Changemakers Organising School, a great place for anyone to drop in or come in every week for training about all things community organising. All the details and registration are on our website. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.